0: Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Dr Lauren Dempster. I'm a lecturer at the School of Law and Queen's University, Belfast. You're joining a very special series of LawPod. We are recording these episodes at the European Society of Criminology Conference in Malaga. It's September 2022 and we want to bring you a snapshot of some of the key criminology research that's being presented at this conference. I'm delighted in this first episode to be joined by Dr David Rodriguez-Goyes. And David, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Uh, so I am Colombian. I'm also a lawyer, and then I took some master uh, programs in sociology and uh, criminology, and then I moved to Norway to do the PhD in criminology. And now I'm a senior researcher in criminology at the Department for Criminology and Society of Law at the University of Oslo.
0: Oh excellent. Thank you, David. We can include a link in our show notes to your profile and your publications, so if any of our listeners want to follow up on that, they can. David, uh, you're talking to us today about your research on climate change from a southern perspective. So to begin, could you perhaps set the scene? I mean, obviously, we know that there's a differential impact in terms of the effects of climate change in the global south. But could you tell us a little bit about what that looks like currently?
1: So this is very interesting because climate change is, of course, a global phenomenon, meaning that it impacts everyone. But people are preferred differently to respond to climate change, right? So there are some people with mo- more money, more power, and so on, to try and do something about climate change either to prevent it or to protect to shield themselves from it from the effects uh, and of course that has to do with how much power they have both kind of in terms of uh, political power economic power uh, cultural power as well and that means that some countries in the global south are uh, worse off when it comes to to confronting uh, climate change because Uh, First, they don't have the resources to build fancy facilities to protect themselves. They don't have the resources to also buy what they need for for climate change, say, you know, water and uh, seeds that can be cropped under warmer conditions uh, and many other aspects. So that's kind of why it is important to, to also see climate change from a Southern perspective.
0: Thank you, David. So this is a a big question to ask you to cover in sort of a few minutes, but could you give us a sense of how criminology as a discipline has responded to climate change?
1: Yeah, no, that's a very good question because it's in the past 10 years that criminology has been uh, studying more and more climate change. I like to think about the way criminology has undertaken climate change as a wheel. So there are six uh, parts of that wheel. And movements in one of them moves the others. Uh, So kind of, we can differentiate between, for instance, how criminologists have studied the causes of climate change. So there are people like Rob White who study the the carbon criminals. Uh, So how different people contribute to climate change. Um, And that's also taken from both a legal perspective in terms of crimes and environmental crimes, but also from a harm perspective, what causes harm, even though it's, it's legal. There are others researching uh, the the consequences of uh, climate change in terms of harms as well. So the people affected by it, uh, say those who have to move, the climate refugees, but also from a non-specialist uh, stance. So the harms for the non-human animals, so the many who are dying because they are dehydrated and many other reasons. Uh, And of course, there are others who are uh, thinking this in terms of uh, strain theory, uh, how the changes in the climate produces more conflict within societies and also kind of that uh, increases other conflicts. Um, There are others as well thinking in terms of how to prevent this. Some more like, you know, preventive criminology, what can we do about this? What are, are the measures we can implement, laws and so on. And there are some others thinking about the secondary crimes. So uh, climate change sets the, the scene very nicely for some more crimes, uh, either, either for those who have to find ways to survive because they lost their main source of income. So say a farmer who cannot crop anymore and then he engages uh, with, uh, say, kidnapping, just to to have some income. And that's what we call uh, post-structural violence. Those who are victimized and then become the victimizers. Uh, yeah, so those are roughly kind of the main ways criminologists have engaged with climate change.
0: Thank you, David, that was an excellent overview in quite a short space of time. I wanted to ask you specifically about the issue of knowledge production. So recently I've been reading Agazino's work from 2004 on criminology as a colonial project. And one of the points you raises is that criminological knowledge tends to be created in the West and exported elsewhere. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on, I guess, the extent to which you think like the challenges that you outline in relation to climate change and the way in which criminology engages with it are shaped by or like affected by those sort of knowledge, production, and power dynamics within the field.
1: Yeah, I think it's not only the field, but I think it's uh, the sciences in general, right? So, so sciences are very Western-centric and that means a modern way of seeing the world and that means believing that humans can understand everything and control everything and it kind of goes back to the to bauman uh, theorization of modernity how people try to uh, divide the world in small pieces atoms and try to modify uh, some of those pieces under the belief that we can control and and, and predict what will happen And that happens in any sciences. And that's the whole idea as well of development. Development says, if we use reason and proof, then we can shape and modify the world the way we want, right? Uh, And that kind of also uh, entails this belief that humans are superior than other species, that we can control everything. And that development is a linear process towards kind of more technology, more industrialization and so on. And that also applies to criminology, right? Uh, when it comes to climate change, it's all the sciences that are thinking in this way, thinking, okay, how can we use this modern way of seeing the world to deal with climate change? And then we come with all the, say, uh, green, uh, green technologies uh, that are uh, also thought in that direction. Kind of, if we develop more technology. We can keep producing, we can keep consuming. So we don't have to change any, anything structurally. We don't have to change our uh, culture. We don't have to change our uh, production system. We just have to keep developing, right? Kind of developing technologies and applying more uh, modern technologies. Um, so that's the uh, sciences in general. Now, the problem with criminology is where does the knowledge come from? And where do the researchers come from and where is criminology funded from, right? And this is very much in the Global North as well. Uh, I, there are many green criminologists who are very critical, uh, and are aware of this, you know, colonial legacies, uh, in, in climate change, but still. There are many voices in the Global South that are not heard because there are not there are no resources for this. So still, it is still somehow skewed uh, knowledge in that sense. But I of course have to also say that green criminologists are very aware of these challenges and are trying to to do something about this.
0: Yeah, in terms of your your own work, then, where you write about Southern green criminology, like what does that look like?
1: Yeah, Southern green criminology it has several premises. Basically, it means being aware of the legacies of colonialism. The the main idea is that colonialism happened some centuries ago, but the structures that were created under that period are still in place, right? So there's still this divide between the colonies and the colonizers. We call that either that or Global North and Global South, but that means that kind of uh, colonialism, it's pretty much alive. Southern Greek criminology is about being aware of that. Uh, trying to trace the consequences of colonialism, uh, the current consequences of colonialism, how that keeps affecting uh, the realities and the victimization, the the crimes, the harms, and so on. And then also being aware of not only those structures in terms of political power, economic power, cultural power, uh, but also what we call coloniality, uh, which is still the belief that it's only. Under the modern scientific way of producing knowledge that we can learn about the world, right? So it's also about giving or kind of creating bridges, for instance, uh, with those who produce knowledge in different ways, right? Uh, so the people who produce knowledge in their daily life, they have to survive, they have to be creative. So indigenous peoples, farmers, and so on. So it's, so it's, uh, Southern green criminology relies on those voices. It's aware of colonialism, the structures that it it left, the the consequences. Um, Yeah, and it tries to be kind of engaged with with all the injustices, environmental injustices, and so on. So that's a a brief overview of of the period. Thanks, David.
0: (laughs) Um, I guess my final question then, I would be interested to hear your reflections in terms of what academics can do, like academics based at institutions in the global north. What, what things can we do in our sort of like academic practice to try and redress that imbalance between the global north and the global south in terms of knowledge production?
1: Yeah, well, there are many things we can do. Of course, this is a huge challenge and I don't think one person will change everything. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so happy about uh, this podcast, because it's about kind of spreading the message and saying, we have to work together to, to change things. It could be either, uh, just. Integrating researchers from the global south, those voices that are not usually heard into not only the research, because that would be somehow exploiting them <laughs> as a labor force, but also in the, in the process of knowledge production, right? Uh, so it's kind of showing that people across the world, regardless where they come from, they have the power to create valid knowledge, right? Uh, so some of the projects in which I have been engaged also with some of our colleagues, uh, we have worked with the indigenous communities in Ecuador, in Colombia, in Brazil, uh, and those, uh, those people we work with, they are co-authors in our articles, right? Because that's also kind of challenging a little bit the practice in criminology of, uh, yeah, I'm the senior researcher, uh, and you are the assistants, so you produce all the data and I publish, right? Uh. So I think that's a big problem, right? Because it sends the image. It's the Europeans and it's the North Americans who who can create knowledge. The others are just kind of workers. And that's the same labor division that has always existed under colonialism. Uh, So that's one of the ways, kind of respecting uh, that power in creating knowledge, including them in the project design, in the data collection, in the analysis and in the writing. There are many challenges along the way, of course, there are language barriers, there are cultural barriers and so on, but that's one way to do it, right? Uh, And if we keep uh, kind of changing that imaginary, that it's only the uh, people from the Global North that can create knowledge, and we credit the people who have also been part of the project, that's one way to to, to balance the epistemological injustice. But of course, and this is very important, there's also an economic uh, dimension to that because it's not like it's only the epistemological part and the knowledge creation part, but there are also other spheres connected to this. And we have to fight those injustices in our spheres because it, it's the only way to counteract coloniality and colonialism. So the economic part is super important, right? So, how do we distribute the research funds with the Global South. Because usually what happens is that the researchers in the Global South, they charge much less, and then we are very happy because we can hire many more. And that's very efficient, right? Uh, But that's not entirely fair. So it's also a little bit about uh, that uh, fund uh, redistribution. And we are doing what we can, so when we get the funding, say, from uh, uh, the UK or the Europe. What we do is we pay the researchers uh, on the field, and then we just kind of we are, we work with them because we are, you know, we have this privilege to be scholars, and we get our salary and so on. So there are many ways of of doing this, but it's it's mainly recognizing the value of the work and the knowledge of people in our location.
0: That's great. Thank you so much, David, and yeah, thank you for joining us today. That was fascinating. My thank pleasure. You. Thank you.